Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of React Native Radio. This week, joining us will be Nader Dabit. Uh, and we're going to be talking about full stack development with React Native on the cloud, including things like Azure, AWS, GCP, Netlify, and is it Zite? Right, Zite. Awesome. So, and uh, to kick things off, James, if you just want to uh, give us a little background on yourself, um, you're one of our panelists, and then we'll kick it over to Nader to introduce himself to you. Hey, everyone. I'm James. I'm a React developer from the UK, and I do a fair bit of React Native as well when I'm not doing that. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works, and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. Hey, James uh, and, and Tim, thank you for having me. Yeah, so my name is Nader Davit. I am a full stack developer. I've done quite a bit of React Native, and lately I've been doing both uh, React Native and React. And I work currently with AWS Mobile on the mobile team, and we focus on kind of a combination of cross-platform uh, development, web development, and integrations uh, with different cloud, um, for, I guess, different cloud services. Nader, what's interesting um, is a lot of our viewers are probably familiar with your voice. Um, you know, for some of our newer listeners, they might not know that you are the previous host of the show. Um, do you kind of want to touch on that for a second and just uh, say hello to some of the fans who might be missing you? Yeah, it's awesome to be back. Actually, um, I've been I've really been wanting to kind of like start at least having um, either an appearance on here, or maybe helping host uh, one or two episodes in the future. So it's really really great to be back. Yeah, so we did the uh, React Native Radio podcast starting in 2015, I believe. Um, did it for a few years, and then I haven't really been on. I've, I guess really since 2018. So um, a little under two years it's been, and uh, really when I was doing the podcast um, before I was a software engineer and then I was running a React Native uh, consulting company. And then since I've joined AWS, um, I, I was still doing the podcast for about six months, but then uh, my time was just too constrained and I was unable to continue being here. So it's really cool to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back. Um, and it's really exciting to have you kind of in the opposite seat this time where we get to really spotlight you and some of the things that you want to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool to be here talking about some of this stuff because, you know, I am a front-end developer. I'm a mobile developer. Um, you know, that's kind of like what I've been doing my entire career. And and working with this back-end tech over the last couple of years, I've learned so much. And really, um, I'm excited about the topic in general because it kind of has enabled me to use my front-end skill set, kind of everything I already knew, but start building these scalable full-stack applications that I thought were kind of out of my league in the past. So, yeah, let's kind of dive into that. Um, you know, we can get our hands dirty and, and kind of where would you want to jump in on this? You know, I think um, you mentioned a lot of terms and stuff, but could you kind of give us the high level overview, um, you know, to someone who's just learning about this topic for the first time? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think what's interesting that we're seeing that's happened over the last few years, really since maybe 
Heroku was introduced, that was kind of like one layer. And then you start seeing all these uh, things like Firebase and all these serverless technologies. You know, what's happened is what used to take like teams of backend engineers and infrastructure engineers, DevOps, you know, people that specialized in databases and um, each individual technology typically would have, you would have somebody on your team that was kind of a specialist in that as a backend developer. All of that work is now being kind of abstracted in a way that kind of allows people that aren't too familiar with how to do all that stuff to use those underlying technologies with these better layers of abstraction. So for me as a front-end developer, as a mobile developer, I can, I can actually build using the same infrastructure that companies like Netflix and Airbnb are using, but without actually having to kind of understand everything going on under the hood. Similar to how kind of, in my opinion, React Native is that really great abstraction on top of iOS and Android. Like, yes, you might need to dive in and do some stuff here and there on the native side, but to get started and to actually build something, you don't really actually have to understand everything going on. You don't actually have to open um, those all of those nested files in your iOS project and understand all of that code, right? You can actually build an app without knowing how all that stuff works. And those abstractions keep getting better and better. Um, that's kind of what, what I'm, you know, kind of highlighting here on the back end um, with Firebase was kind of the first really great one, I think, that that was out there that allowed you just to just hook in as a database, as a service. Um, and then you've started seeing additional things that are kind of out there. AWS was, that's the company I work with, and it was typically very, very hard to get started. And then the team that I'm working on, we're kind of trying to build tools that allow people to, you know, use it without actually having to have all of this domain knowledge on the back end. We're building abstractions similar to Firebase. And then you mentioned uh, Netlify and Zeit. Um, there's all these different companies that are kind of springing up around building um, or are allowing people to build these full stack applications um, with better abstractions on the back end. Right. When I kind of think of some of this stuff, um, I think about how intimidating it used to be for me and, you know, still is um, jumping into things like AWS. Uh, if you're not trained in that or super familiar with it, um, could be, you know, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and when I first started, actually, I wasn't really that specialized. But in fact, I really had barely done much outside of maybe a little bit of serverless stuff. Um, but luckily, the team that I'm on is actually a client technology team. Like everything we build is focused at what you might typically consider front-end developers. So I was kind of a good fit because I could kind of look at the stuff that we're building and give my feedback to someone that didn't know about any of this stuff and say, this is easy to do. This is hard to do. This makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Um, and again, using just kind of my, my, my knowledge of JavaScript, my knowledge of kind of um, how to interact with APIs and stuff like that, I was actually able to, to help. You know, I'm a tiny part of the team, but I was on this team as we started building out all of this stuff. And now we have, you know, a massive number of developers that are building things, you know, on the cloud by themselves or on teams that in the past, just three or four years ago, would not have been able to do that. Are there any uh, like examples uh, specifically of, you know, maybe like a specific app or something that's really uh, utilizing this strategy right now to, to do these things? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think really what you can kind of look at is like, what are the things that I'm talking about? Like, what are the services and what are the things that you would need? And if you think about any app, you kind of have... Um, this idea of like, what are the really core features of most applications? Um, 
you know, other than the front end stuff that you would typically have, like the user interface. Of course, like you could kind of always assume that you're going to need some type of database. You're going to need some type of API to interact with that database. You're probably going to need some type of authentication mechanism. Um, you're then going to need to have some form of authorization that happens between the authentication and the, and the API and the database. Um, you also typically need um, ways to store images, videos, all of these um, large objects. So I would say um, API, database, storage, and authentication, right? Those are kind of like four main things. Now, what would we do in the past? If you're like a backend developer, you may have spun up like a Node.js server, and then you start picking up something like Passport, and you have to understand kind of how to actually, you know, integrate uh, authentication and authorization there. Then you have to deploy this server somewhere. And then you have to understand how to pass the right, the headers based on the user that signed in. And then you have to think about permissions, roles, uh, admins, things like that. Like all of this stuff is like pretty complex when you start actually building something that is sophisticated or more than something just really basic. Um, so we've built, you know, building blocks around all of these things that allow you to kind of um, spin up a, well, really this is kind of getting into like what are these types of services and this um, quote unquote idea of a serverless or a managed service. And I think that um, the, the things that we offer on my team, the things that we're building and a lot of other people are also doing a great job of this. You know, when I say uh, Amplify, that's kind of my domain. That's where I'm working with AWS. But again, I mentioned Firebase, I mentioned Netlify, I mentioned Zite. Uh, there's this new company called Begin. There's a bunch of companies out there that are kind of doing this. And typically what they're doing are taking these cloud services that were really tough to kind of implement and get started with and building um, better, uh, better, I guess, abstractions on top of those that fall into this uh, quote unquote like serverless category. And serverless, um, when it first, that term was first coined, it was typically meant to talk about serverless functions or functions as a service. Whereas you would have this um, short-lived runtime or this short-lived function invocation that you could just hit. You don't actually have to worry about managing the server, dealing with server patching, any of that stuff. You just kind of have this endpoint that you hit. So that, that became really popular. And we also have had things like Auth0 that are managed authentication services. And I think what you hear uh, and you see are people kind of like taking those managed services and kind of putting them under the serverless umbrella and building additional things that kind of fall into that, that same paradigm where you don't actually have to manage this thing. You can actually just spin, spin an instance of it up and you have like all these best practices built in. So with Auth0, they were a game changer because you could actually um, have this really robust authentication service up and running and uh, only have to spend about 30 minutes to kind of do it or less. I don't know how much time, but you would have, they had the client SDKs and they had the actual backend service to kind of work together, right? Um, and then with us, we have uh, we have something called Amazon Cognito, which is a managed authentication service. We have um, stuff like um, AWS AppSync, which is a managed GraphQL service. S3, of course, is just an AWS service, but we built, we built nice um, APIs around it that allow people to kind of use that to store videos and images. So, I mean, uh, I mean, if you look at like who's using these services, I mean, uh, I mean, you could, I could go on forever, right? There's like 
almost every big company is using AWS in some way. Whether right. or not they're using Amplify on the client or not, I, we don't really know, right? Because um, if someone's using Amplify to call S3, like we don't know that, right? But we, but we do work with a lot of big companies that are kind of like, you know, um, that we do know that are using it, I guess. But like, you know, um, at, at the end of the day, companies like Ticketmaster are using AppSync. Companies like, uh, you know, Netflix, of course, are using uh, different services, Snapchat. Um, like we have a few different uh, use, we have a few different um, white papers, I think, published on some of our documentation about who's using it. Um, but instead of like, uh, we don't really, I guess, have a lot of focus around documenting that stuff. What we're really spending a lot of time on really is just improving our, our user experience and kind of trying to scale with the number of users that we're, we're getting because we're growing like three times faster than a lot of AW, other AWS services that are out there. So you mentioned um, you're trying to improve that user experience and stuff. So, so what does that look like? How do you offer, um, you know, more meaningful interactions for users that, that really help them get up to speed quicker with all this stuff? Yeah. So like um, if you look at how you might have um, interacted with the Cognito authentication service in the past, you would probably use, as a JS developer, you might have used the AWS JavaScript SDK. And what we've built instead is kind of using that SDK, we've built a higher level abstraction built into this Amplify JavaScript client, or we also have React Native and Native iOS and Native Android. But typically, uh, what you would have to do, you would have to kind of like use this AWS SDK and understand a lot of what's going on with the service itself. It just was not that good of an API, in my opinion. Um, we've used that uh, SDK within Amplify to kind of build a much easier uh, API to kind of interact. So to sign in, you just call auth.signin, you pass in the username and the password, and that's it. We actually handle everything as far as persisting um, the tokens, refresh tokens. Um, we deal with, uh, you know, working with the access tokens and all of that stuff. We even store all the stuff uh, locally for you. And then when you sign out, we kind of clear out your uh, your local storage or your async storage on React Native. And then to actually spin up the service itself. So we have the client library to interact with it. To actually spin up the service itself, we have a command line interface where you just say, I want to add an authentication service by running Amplify at auth. We kind of spin up that backend service um, to kind of create you know, a GraphQL API. You just run Amplify at API and we spin up that GraphQL API. So it's kind of a combination of the command line interface that allows you to kind of spin up these services easier, the client library that allows you to, to kind of connect to them easier from your React or React Native app. And then we also have a hosting service that I guess a little bit out of the scope of this, of this conversation because it's not really React Native related. But if you're wanting to deploy a, a web app um, really easily, we kind of also have a hosting service. That's really interesting. Um, a lot of what you said is really resonating because I, I'm a front-end developer as well. Um, and that is why I went with React Native when I started picking a framework. Um, and I just, uh, anything that sort of does that abstraction and makes it easier for somebody who's traditionally sort of a JavaScript developer, I think that's really interesting and it's really useful as well. What's the uh, learning curve like um, with the AWS stuff you're providing? So um, I think to me, the hardest part of getting up and running with this stuff is the initial like going in and creating an AWS account and mm -hmm. um, then creating what's called an IAM user, which is basically 
a user that you kind of are assigning on behalf of yourself to be able to create these services. But like we've documented that really well in like a getting started video. To me, the getting started experience, the kind of the, the, the user experience is probably, to me, at least based on my past experience with AWS, is has to be like 10x better. But it's probably not as good as something that doesn't require you to sign up at all because with AWS, you still have to actually have an AWS account to even get started with this stuff, right? If you use something like sure. Netlify or Zite, you literally just have to run a single command from your command line. They don't have to know who you are or anything. They'll just go ahead and deploy that for you. So I think that's the big uh, trade-off between what we have versus some of these other services that might have a better getting started experience. Um, unfortunately, at, the, at this moment, at least, we don't really see any way to kind of get around that. But once you've actually created that account and you have that user created, which again, probably takes like five minutes, then the experience should be pretty good. And we've actually just released a new version of Docs that we've spent quite a bit of time working on. And one of, so I work on the DA team, the developer advocate team. I'm, I'm the manager now of that team. One of our new goals actually this year, um, and we have new people joining our team, is they kind of spend a lot of time on those docs over time, continuing to approve those. So instead of us kind of like only going out and speaking at conferences and writing blog posts, we're going to be focusing on improving those docs because, um, again, that's kind of part of that, you know, that user experience. We want to make everything as straightforward as possible. So we're, we're working to continue to, to improve that. Many of you have probably heard about App Store optimization and how it can help you get more downloads. There's a lot of demand for apps right now, so it's a really great time to give it a try. It's easier than you think. The folks at AppFigures have easy step-by-step -step guides and intuitive tools, which many indie developers are using to get more downloads. The guys who run it are indie devs who have a need and created the tool. 11 years later, it's an all-in-one platform for developers who want to get more downloads and make more money with their apps. Try AppFigures for free, and if you like it, you can use our special code RNR3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Oh, that's awesome. What's sort of the, I guess, what's your favorite feature? And what kind of, what is it that's going to make uh, a beginner React Native developer go from just using React Native or just, just starting off in Expo, let's say, to gravitating towards a more powerful sort of AWS service? I mean, if you look at our downloads, because this is all available on NPM, by far the number one most used uh, API is authentication. And I think that's because um, it's actually like a really, like, aha moment because it literally it takes like five minutes to add a really um, robust authentication service. The same authentication service, again, mm -hmm. used at these massive companies, you can actually build yourself as a front-end developer in like five minutes because you add the authentication service. And then we have this, uh, for React Native, actually, we have this higher order component or we have this um, uh, React Native component. We have two options. And it's literally like either two or three lines of code to add authentication. And that seems to be the... That, that, that whenever people have that experience, they seem to just be sold on it, on it from there because even if they don't use anything else, the authentication that they've just enabled um, is free for the first 50,000 users, first of all. So it's kind of like free. But all, in addition to that, it's actually, again, something that's like a real world thing. It's not just a toy. You're, you're kind of like having this thing. And if you, for the, uh, you know, the tiny chance that you get a million users that will scale to that. But even if it doesn't, like you still have something that works and is pretty easy to do. So, I mean, like to me, really the two things other than authentication would be like setting, spinning up that, that GraphQL API because 
GraphQL is awesome, but as a front-end developer, understanding how to actually build a GraphQL server, how to scale it, how to do authentication and authorization and all that shit. Oh my God, that was like really not, not intuitive at all for me. So um, like managed services like Hasura is a really good option also, and they're nothing to do with us. That's kind of like um, just another similar thing to our managed GraphQL service. Any of these managed services like that are great entry points for front-end developers to kind of get up and running with, uh, with a back-end uh, API, you know, because really the core, if you start like listing the core features again, data and authentication are probably the top two. So um, we've tried to really focus on making the, that experience really, really nice. And we've actually just released something else, like in, in December, we just released this. And it's another um, kind of similar thing that kind of falls into this data or this API category. And it's a way uh, to um, enable people to build offline apps much easier. So we actually have this new layer that we call data store that is optional that you can use. And depending on the platform, so if you're using Expo or React Native, we uh, utilize at the moment async storage. We're now building a bridge though that goes into the native storage. Uh, if you're on web, um, we use, oh God, I forgot what we use, but we use, we don't use local stores. We use something else. Um, and then if you're on native iOS or native Android, we use uh, the persistence layer there. But uh, essentially you can basically uh, write to this local um, storage engine and then we persist all of that for you to the back end when you're online. And if you're offline, we then kind of set up a, um, you know, a list of all of these operations that were going to happen. And then when you go back online, we kind of send those in the right order. And then we handle all of the conflict resolution for you on the back end. So kind of, uh, it just makes building offline apps really easy, which is, you know, a really popular um, use case these days. Yeah, that's really cool. I know that um, authentication wise, as soon as you said that, I was like, that's got to be the killer feature, right? Just like, it's such a headache to set it up sometimes. The last time I did, I think I was, I think it was Firebase that got involved with it. And it, it just starts to add that complexity where things start to spiral in a way you don't necessarily want as a developer. So having something that just takes away that pain, that sounds brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I hear that all the time, yeah. I was actually mega interested in the um, the offline storage features and stuff too, just because, you know, that's a problem that sometimes we think about on my team um, is, you know, a user makes all these actions or something and maybe they're on the plane or they've dropped internet briefly. Um, and just how do you queue all that up um, and, and make sure it fires off when the, when the time's right? Um, it can be a huge headache. So something to manage that just sounds absolutely awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's something that they've spent, you know, the team spent a long time on, I can't say exactly how long, but it was over a year, just kind of um, prototyping it out and then building out the V1 for this. But essentially it's kind of, it's a bunch of things put into one, right? It's it's the client side SDKs, but it's also part of the service because um, there's a few different things that go on. So when you create, um, say for instance, an item, like if you have uh, this feature enabled, you create a new to-do, for example, and you, let's say that you are offline and um, you also have another user that's kind of, you know, interacting with the same app. They create a to-do and uh, they are online, right? So who, like whose to-do went first? That's not even that, I guess, that interesting of a problem. But let's say both of those to-dos get created when the other user comes back online. But uh, let's say that offline user goes back offline and they update one of those to-dos to change the title. 
while the other person, let's say, updates that same to-do with the description that's different, right? That's where you start seeing this, this problem with conflict detection, conflict resolution. Um, we handled all of that for you because uh, we use a, this idea of this new pattern that we kind of uh, created and we patented called auto-merge, where we not only will do conflict detection at the type level, so, but also at all of these different fields. So let's say that that user comes back online and he detects that there has been a change in one of these two fields. Instead of overriding the entire type, the, the last person to come online, if it's possible, will just merge those fields. So that way you have kind of changes that don't get overwritten based on the last write. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into it. So on the client, we, we basically are tagging each field with versions. And we do that um, using kind of like our own, again, our own strategy that we call auto-merge. And um, at the actual service level, we end up having two different tables. We have like a base table and then we have a change table or a journal. So we have this base table. So when a new update comes in, we can actually look at that change table, the journal, and see like when the last updates were updates happened on that type and decide on what the uh, conflict resolution strategy should be. Because if um, we are a newer write and the old last item that changed um, was the title, we're also updating the title. Maybe at that point we would update the title. But if the last update happened uh, with the description, instead of updating the entire item, we would get that item from the change table merge it and then change add that to the main table so there's a lot of stuff kind of uh, going on but essentially we just try to handle a lot of that that crazy heavy lifting uh, for you yeah that makes a lot of sense um and maybe this might be backtracking like a little bit um but some of these things that you're talking about do sound react native specific and i guess um you know when i originally was introduced to things like serverless and all these things um it was always in the context of websites so a lot of these features um you know, sound mobile specific. So could you kind of shed some light on like, you know, what, so how much of this is, you know, something that a React developer could also use on the web and then how much of it like specifically is like just something that is for React Native? Got it. So, I mean, I, I guess what we're starting to, to notice emerge in this industry is like, let's say you're a startup, for example, and you want to build your app. Um, 10 years ago, you would have to hire a web team, you would have to hire a native iOS team, a native Android team, and a desktop team, right? But now, you know, what, what React Native introduced was this idea of cross-platform. So now you might be able to get away with maybe just uh, one web developer or a React Native developer that can kind of deploy across all four of these platforms. Um, what we're kind of noticing in this industry, you know, with our customers is this exact thing happening, right? They do, people do want to build across all these platforms but they don't want to write the same logic over and over and over. Um, they don't want to have to kind of build their own SDKs from scratch. So what we're kind of introducing is in all of our client libraries, we introduce um, not only like web libraries, web, web SDKs, but we also have React Native um, with Expo integration and native iOS and native Android. And we actually have support for all the different JavaScript frameworks as well. So when we release a new feature, we're actually releasing it like seven or eight different places. It has to be written on native iOS. It has to be written on native Android. 
It has to be written on React Native, React, all these different places, because we have uh, platform-specific components that we're supporting. And we do this because if you're uh, if you're uh, if your company wants to kind of build using our stuff, we want to have the API look exactly the same across all these platforms. So if your team is adopting React Native, you can actually just use this React Native SDK and deploy to iOS, Android, and React Native Web because. Um, we also support React Native Web and Expo Web. Um, so essentially kind of we're tackling a problem that's in a similar like paradigm, I guess you could say, is what React Native is doing in the sense that uh, we want to kind of write all this code and we have like all these people doing it for you. So you can actually just use these SDKs and they're just going to work. And you don't actually have to write all this uh, this logic yourselves. And React Native is you know my specialty and it's one of the things that I focus on a lot being on this team. And um, we're, we have a lot of people using React Native. We continue to make improvements there. You know, people keep picking it up and um, they like it because again, kind of you're able to do all of this stuff without having to kind of write a lot of this code by hand. Um, for instance, let's say you want to kind of make a signed API request um, with passing in the correct headers for the sign-in user and it need to be in the right format. If the user is signed in, we actually automatically take care of all that for you. So when you make an API call, you only have to kind of say, hey, get this data. And we take care of all the different uh, signing and the headers and all that stuff for you if you're on uh, React Native. You know? That's really interesting. I mean, what you say about sort of 10 years ago is is so accurate. Um, it's only recently that like you can cut the team down to just a couple of people and you can specialize in one area and it will deploy everywhere. I know. Um, so it just it's slightly off topic, but like five years ago when you started with this podcast, what kind of changes have we seen in those five years? Where's React Native changed in that kind of period of time? I mean, you know, it's crazy what's happened there. I mean, over the past five years, because yes, there really wasn't that good of an option. If you wanted to build a cross-platform back then, you were using maybe something like Xamarin, but people weren't like too crazy about it, right? Because um there was sort of phone gap and there were yeah, a couple of things so I, yeah gap. i remember looking into that and i was like i almost went that way and i moved into react nature for the last moment which i'm pretty pleased about yeah phone gap but, but with phone gap right it's still just a web view there wasn't anything that was truly felt uh felt that was polished enough for companies like amazon or like microsoft to use it for their Absolutely. big projects right um, but I think what React Native has brought to the table and what's really accelerated over the last two years is that like Microsoft is now a React Native first company, from what I understand. When they create a new app, um, they put React Native right there in the in the front of the line with these other options. And they are actually building a lot of new projects in React Native. I worked at Amazon. Uh, we create a lot of, we build a lot of stuff in React Native. You'd be surprised at some of the apps that you use that have React Native views and then, uh, for instance, Alexa, you know, their new app was just released that is fully from the ground up React Native. All these things are happening in these massive companies. I think, you know, five years ago, of course, it wasn't happening. But really, even like three years ago, you weren't seeing as much massive adoption. And, you know, it's it's really about the the cost, right? And maybe even the, the developer velocity and, and, and the time spent. You're seeing this happen because it's it's cheaper and it's more efficient and they're they're spending less time to do it and they're spending less money on developers. It just makes sense because yeah, React sure. Native has gotten good enough to where 
that can be, you know, dependable for these certain types of apps. Maybe not everything, but it's definitely there for a lot of the different apps that people are building. Yeah, this came up last week, actually. We were talking about some performance testing, and there have been times that React Native has outperformed native iOS, apparently, which is incredible, really. You, you really would not expect that to be the case. Yeah, I've heard that as well, um, which is really interesting. <laughs> and I think it really, again, <laughs> comes down to, um, so React Native is a, better, is, is a better option than what we had in the past. But really, it comes down to the, the code that's written because you can write slow React Native code or fast React Native code. You can write performant native code or non-performant native code. So um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that people are starting to actually recognize that and call it out because at this point, React Native is good enough to where it can be as fast as native um, and, and, and therefore people are using it in the place of native in some cases, yeah. I guess it's interesting just, you know, kind of looking back on React Native and thinking about how it's just matured over the years. And I guess in a way too, like kind of tying it back to like our original topic, um, now we're just really watching these cloud and managed services um, going through like the same maturity process where it's just becoming mainstream and super usable. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it's all about, at the end of the day, people just want to build stuff that looks good, that, that has a good user experience. And they do. They want to do that with the least amount of uh, money, right? As possible, maybe even the least amount of time. Um, you know, the fact that Skype, Pinterest, Bloomberg, Tesla, Uber, all these companies are using it is 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 the testament of React Native itself. We don't even have to say whether or not it's you know is it good enough. Like we don't have to even prove that anymore. All these other companies are kind of proving it for us as React Native developers. So it's pretty cool time to be. A React Native developer, you know? Yeah, it's great. Um, I guess another question too, though, thinking about these um, services. So, you know, one, one question that people always ask about React Native is, is there ever a time when you, um, you know, maybe wouldn't want to pick React Native? Um, and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole specifically, but, you know, in the same spirit, is there ever a time where, you know, maybe doing these cloud managed services, um, it, maybe it would be better to roll your own instead. Is that ever uh, something worth considering for people? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, uh, e each one of these services um, that I'm talking about, um, even Lambda, even AWS Lambda, which is kind of the original serverless service, you know, they all come with their trade-offs. And I think that you have to look at the application that you're building and decide whether or not the trade-offs uh, are limiting to what you are building. So for instance, uh, if you use something like a managed authentication service like Auth0 or Amazon Cognito, you are given this set of APIs that you are constrained to. So for instance, if you need to do something uh, with your users, maybe query in some way that would be more of a database query versus like a query against what um, we offer, what Auth0 offers, then you're kind of out of luck. You might have to get around it in some way if you're using our service, you might actually have to duplicate all of uh, your user data or a lot of your user data in a database to query it. So instead, you might have to roll your own. Um, if you're using something like AWS AppSync, which is the GraphQL service, you are stuck with our feature set, which is something we've kind of like fine-tuned over the last few years, and it works, but you know it might not be exactly what you need. You might need something that we don't offer. And, and that's kind of the way I, I always kind of say, I say like use a managed service if, it, if you possibly can because you're going to save a lot of time and effort and money up front. 
Um, but if you feel like it's going to be uh, constraining you and, and you're going to need features that aren't there, then don't use it. Don't even start with it because you're going to end up having to rewrite everything anyway. So yeah, there's definitely trade-offs there. And um, I definitely don't see it as a one-size-fits-all um, in any case. Um, I would I would explore not only AWS Amplify, but um, Azure. I would, I would explore Firebase, Netlify, Begin, Zite, all these different things. See which one works best for you. I think what we're trying to do is at the end of the day, after people kind of try all these things, we want to be so good that people still come back to use our stuff. So we never, I never like say, don't try anything else. I say, try everything. Um, don't use it if it's kind of like not going to fit your use case. And um, and then give us feedback. If we can improve anything, let us know. Because we have so many people that like our full-time job is to do just that, you know? Great. Yeah, I guess it just goes back to the age-old question of, um, you know, what's going to be the right tool and really just sitting down and taking the time to, you know, look at what the trade-offs between your different options are. So, I mean, never just dive too quick into picking something just for the sake of getting going, just, you know, spend that time and really figure out what's right for your, um, your product essentially. Yeah, that's right. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight, and Douglas Crockford, and Chris Heilman. After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you, online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com. One thing that's I think is like super wild to me um, is we've actually met in person one time. Um, you flew into Los Angeles and gave a talk at JSLA, um, which is basically just like uh, it's actually I almost want to say a little meetup, but that one was a huge meetup with a with an absolutely massive audience, um, and, and you really rocked it. Um, is super interesting talk. Uh, so, so what I guess I'm curious about is, are you still getting to what? Well, not right now. I know the world's kind of in a in a situation where you're you're probably not flying around doing a bunch of talks. Um, but is that still part of your life right now? Like, do you still have those opportunities? Um, yeah. So, like um, this year, I have probably twenty or thirty talks kind of lined up for the year, and pretty much almost all of those were either postponed, canceled, or, or put online. So I'm still doing some, but not nearly as much. I'm actually enjoying being home uh, with my family and chilling right. out. Um, I, I think I was in like 21 countries in 2019. And uh, if you imagine like how much actual, like how many airports, how many planes and travel I was doing, it was actually a little much. But um, so like this year uh, I traveled in January. I'm sorry, I, fe- I traveled in February and March, like the first week of March, like the first three or four days. And that was it. And since then, I haven't gone anywhere, and I don't see myself going anywhere, which is really nice. But yeah, I'm gonna still do a bunch of um, a bunch of talks online, but not not as many as I was gonna do. Again, I think my net, my new focus lately has been improving the docs, um, interacting with people on GitHub, trying to solve their problems. I think we're past. Uh, we're still, of course, like enjoying when someone new comes and tries it out. I think we've kind of gotten past the point where. We need to kind of gain awareness, and now we just need to hyper focus on um, our docs, improving, um, you know, what we already have. Because people, a lot of people, kind of already know about us. They're trying us out and things like that. 
But as far as like JSLA is concerned, that's pretty interesting. That was pretty cool to be there. Like um, I'm from Mississippi and I live in Mississippi, but the first development uh, job as a software developer I had was in LA. And um, so I like basically moved from here to LA and lived there for like a year. And um, the first meetup I ever went to was JSLA. And it was actually the first time I actually got exposed to the, um, the developer community and it literally kind of started my whole career just being at that meetup because I was, I was completely unaware that people actually got together and hung out and, and ate food and drank and chilled and all that stuff. So like that was a big, a big, uh, just eye-opening event when I went to JSLA. So the fact that I got to go back out there and speak at Google and there was like 300 people there, that was just amazing. And it's, it's probably one of those most meaningful talks that I've ever given. So yeah, I have to say, just call that out, that that was really cool. And I really did enjoy kind of meeting everyone there and hanging out afterwards too. Yeah, I remember you had this this one great moment where um, you had this application up basically where um, people could, it was like a music making application and uh, people in the audience could log in and kind of just put some input into the the music application so at one point uh someone must have selected like this deep deep bass option and you hit play and google's sound system in that room was just absolutely absurd um so just it it was a great it wasn't like a scary blast or anything it was just like this great bass blast that just kind of sent the audience like wild over it yeah that was fun yeah it basically was like this music beatbox and um people could kind of join in and create beats too yeah that was that was crazy yeah, super fun. It definitely, if anyone's in LA, um, I think they're doing virtual meetups right now for JSLA. Um, but especially when they kick back up and do it for real um, in person again, like if anyone's listening, you should definitely go to those. They're a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, probably one of my favorite meetups, if not my favorite meetup in the entire world, is JSLA. Really well done. Nice. Over a long period of time too, you know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I'll credit to the organizers of that because, yeah, it's been going on a long time. And it's cool, too, because actually I moved out here um, up in L.A. maybe like two years ago because I'm originally from uh, Michigan. And, uh, yeah, that was the first meetup I went to, too. I was like, how do I meet people or, like, connect in this community of JavaScript stuff? And, uh, bam, like, went on meetup.com, and there it was. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So, uh if you were going to go back to being a beginner React Native developer or looking back at the last few years of experience that you have, if there was somebody who was looking to move from maybe just normal React or just a JavaScript dev looking to get into React Native and make some apps, what kind of advice would you give them to scope out first? What were the first few things that you'd look at doing now? Um, so I've done a lot of React Native training over the last few years. I actually you know, did that professionally for like a year and a half. I taught companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Warner Brothers, Chase, all these big companies. And I think the the one thing, if I could say, okay, if you had like just a short amount of time and you want to learn the most uh, amount as possible, I would literally go to the React Native docs and um, open up each individual API and UI component and just try to write, implement all of those one at a time yourself. After you've done that, you're going to have a good um, understanding of kind of like what is possible. I think... I think when you're writing mobile apps um, or just writing apps, understanding the APIs that are there kind of start like opening your mind to the things that are possible because you might not realize that you can do things like, you know, find, um, you know, the geolocation or you might not like just starting off, you might not know all these things. 
So kind of knowing that those are all there, kind of uh, implementing one at a time will uh, teach you not only what's there, but how to do it. And then maybe after that, just create your first app and actually just ship it. Um, when I say ship it, that doesn't mean you have to actually ship it to the app store, but kind of finish it, put it on GitHub, put like the readme, you know, just have something and, and build it. And I think doing that will put you like a year or two ahead of everyone else. I think what a lot of people kind of get stuck in is taking a bunch of tutorials and stuff and you end up kind of learning the same thing over and over. So that's really great advice. I think actually, how do you feel about um, Expo? Cause I've, I've been playing with that a bit recently and like, it's, it's such an easy entrance to doing it. Like it just takes everything away. So it's just super easy to start making an app. But do you think that um, if you start doing that, that you're setting yourself up for more difficulties later on? As soon as you've got to eject, it would be better to just learn how to do that early on. Or do you think it's cool to start with something a little bit more straightforward? I love Expo. I, I totally recommend it if you're starting off. And I think if you want to make React Native your career, you should probably learn both. You should start maybe with Expo and then also learn how to build from React Native because if you are a professional React Native developer, you're probably going to be expected to learn, to understand both. Um, also, if you're just wanting to kind of ship something to the App Store and you, you do run into some uh, circumstance where a uh, feature isn't yet supported by Expo, you will have to eject anyway. So I think learning both yeah. is definitely a good, a good place to be. And I think like, uh, you know, I, I kind of recommend... Um, starting with Expo until you can't use it anymore, or if you kind of know for sure that Expo isn't going to support what you want, then just starting from the React Native CLI. So yeah, I do love Expo, and, and they've just gotten so much. They just keep getting better and better and better. You know, it's it's wild how how good it is at this point. I discovered the Expo snacks um, a couple of months back, actually, and they just for anybody listening, just, you can log on, you can do all your app building online in a web interface, basically. Um, and you can load them on your phone. You can load them in simulators online. And it's for a very basic couple of pages. It's a really great way just to throw some stuff together with no real setup. I just think it's, it's such a neat way of doing it. Yeah, I'm actually teaching um, one of my friends. He's, a, uh, he's like a back surgeon, but he's kind of like on furlough at this moment because of coronavirus. And we're meeting yeah. tomorrow to learn uh, React Native, and I'm teaching him using Expo. <laughs> uh, oh, snack, that's cool. Just like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So actually, like, quite a few topics now. Like, I almost wish we could just do a whole episode um, where I can pick your brain about various React Native stuff. Um, it's just super interesting to get your takes on things. Um, I guess I it would be awesome for me to, I mean, if you, if you have, like, another uh, opening in the next couple of months, I'd love to come in and maybe talk about just learning React Native based on, the experiences that I've had teaching it over the like the course of around two years, just getting uh, giving the you know feedback and stuff that I've gotten from people what worked, what didn't work, and and also maybe recommendations around other people that want to get into teaching. Yeah, definitely. I think that'd be super awesome to just say, we can do another episode um, in a few weeks or something where we just kind of dig into into learning all that stuff. Um, kind of just want to pick your brain too on like general philosophy about react native and, and maybe just do a look back on how you think it's changed over time and everything. Cause that would be really uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Cool. Let's plan for that. Listeners. If you're, if you're listening, we're going to, we're going to make that happen. Cause that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, well, since we have you on the line too, uh, Nader, one thing I'm actually curious about too, and just kind of, you know, for our listeners who love you and, and are, you know, missing you, um, 
is there anything that you want to say about the podcast in general? Like just kind of looking back over it and over your, because I feel like no one's ever gotten the time to uh, ask you kind of like a meta question about like, you know, what's it like looking back on like um, doing this whole thing for so long? Um, yeah. I mean, the, this podcast opened so like many doors for me in my career, actually. I, th- I think that the, one of the biggest pivoting points in my career was kind of getting on this podcast and doing it over those course of a few years because I met so many people in the community that I kind of became friends with that I ended up having opportunities just happen because you kind of get to know these people when you start being in their networks and all that stuff. Um, also just kind of, I think people, um, from what I understand, from what people have told me when I've read, you know, when you, when you start hearing someone's voice over and over, when you're listening to a podcast, you start feeling like you kind of know them and then you become more approachable. So I feel like a lot of people on social media like um, when we start talking and stuff or, or, you know, not they're, they're less likely to kind of be intimidated by you because they like feel like they know you. And therefore we end up having like really meaningful conversations that just happen naturally. And, and a lot of, and, and many of those times it's people that have heard me on my podcast. So, I mean, I have such, you know, good memories and uh, experiences from the podcast and like, I wouldn't, I would recommend if anyone is interested in kind of like, you know, getting their name out there and being on a podcast or starting a podcast, it's a really good move for your career. If you're looking to be kind of an outward facing per- person, you know? Yeah, definitely too. Especially if people who are listening now have a topic that they know a lot about regarding React Native or something like reach out, come, come hang out on the show and, uh, you know, get out there and, and talk to people because uh, it's super worth doing. So we're kind of nearing the end of our time a little bit, but uh, I just want to give both you guys an opportunity. Is there any other questions or topics um, specifically, you know, like in the context of React Native and this full stack development um, that you, that we didn't get a touch on that you think is worth bringing up? Oh, we are out of time for you, Nada. Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm actually having to jump on a call in about one minute anyway, so I don't think I'm going to have any feedback there or any you know, anything to kind of call out. We, we had a pretty good discussion, I think, we covered quite a bit. Um, I would say if people are interested in this space, um, again, check out all of the different things I mentioned. You know, you've probably already played with Firebase, but check out Begin, check out Zite, uh, check out Netlify, see what all these different platforms have to offer and start playing around with it and just kind of seeing what you can do. You might not need that entire backend team like you think you, you might need, right? You might be able to kind of build out uh, these really amazing things with uh, less time, less effort, less money than you've uh, thought of in the past. And you might be able to change your LinkedIn profile to be a full stack cloud developer, which will get you paid more and give you more opportunities. (laughs) Good advice. Well, we'll definitely include, um, you know, begin and some of those other things as your sick picks um, in the episode notes for sure. Um, Well, uh, James, um, Tim, thank you so much for having me on. It's been amazing to be back. And I actually look forward to being back again soon to talk about React Native, like learning and teaching and all of that. That sounds fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks for coming back. Can't wait to speak again in a few weeks. Sounds awesome. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Later, guys. I'll talk to you both later. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, take care. Bye. So, James, uh, what are your sick picks this week? Uh, uh, we're still in lockdown in the UK, which means that I, I still not had a lot to do. But one thing that we've been doing, we've been doing a lot of board games. We've been playing a lot of uh, games over uh, sort of Zoom and house party and stuff. And somebody for Christmas bought us a game called The Game of Things. And that is my pick for this week. 
So Things is a party game where everybody writes a response to a, a particular prompt. So one of the examples is things you shouldn't put in your mouth, for example. And then all of the other players have to write a response to that. And then you take it in turns to guess who wrote what. And it it can turn into, it depends how close you are as a group of friends, I guess. But um, it, it becomes Cards Against Humanity pretty quickly the last two times that I've played it. Uh, but it's a lot of fun and it's really easy to play over a, a webcam or something. So that's my pick for this week. Nice. Yeah, I like the idea of playing a board game over a webcam. Because um, I'm like a... I used to be super into board games, um, and now's like a such an important time to stay in touch with everyone. Yeah, for sure. Which is why, for my sick pick, I'm going the total opposite route of um, self isolating TV, um, and I'm going to sick <laughs> pick uh, this, this. So there's this new show. Um, you can you can watch it on Hulu. It's called Devs. Uh, so basically I, I won't spoil anything. I'm anti-spoiler, but I will give you a little bit of a, a rundown of the first episode, just kind of capture your attention. Uh, so basically there's a developer working at a company, uh, in, the person who runs the company is the actor, um, Nick Offerman. You probably know from like Parks and Rec or that, but, uh, in this show, he's playing yeah. a, a serious role as a CEO of kind of like this big tech company, almost like Google or something. And this developer gets invited to join a super top secret team called Devs. That's in in the building that it's in is like this airtight um, concrete building that has these gold plates to block cell phone signals and stuff. So the first episode kind of just follows him being introduced to what's going on on this secret development project at this company. And I, I almost don't want to say anything else, but it gets weird super quick and goes into just really deep universe type stuff that uh it, it kind of keeps you coming back every episode and it's pretty well written i think the guy who's directing it or writing it um is the same one who made ex machina um there's like another show that's or a movie that he did that's really popular too but uh so if you like ex machina it's kind of in in that same vein that sounds good i'm going to check it out yeah it's it's a pretty interesting show it's kind of wild so all right well that wraps it up for us everyone um thanks again Nader, for joining us thanks james um tune in next week for more bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more